Well, good morning, 1030 friends at Good Shepherd Church. Thank you for that. I am Talbot Davis. I'm the pa- I was the pastor at 9 o'clock as well. Pastor here, and whether you are connecting live or live stream, it's really the, like the best part of my week when I get to, get to be able to engage back with you. We are starting a brand new series today, The Promise of Christmas. Takes us all the way through not only Christmas Eve, which is a Sunday this year, but the Sunday after Christmas. Christmas Eve, which is also known as New Year's Eve, all the way through that is this series. Today it's called Promise Made. And if you have your Bible with you, maybe your Bible looks like mine and it kind of looks like a book, even though it's not a book, or, or maybe your Bible is on your phone. Either way, if you have it with you, I want to invite you to locate the Old Testament prophet Micah. Micah, the one of the what they call the minor prophets, not because his, his message doesn't matter, but because it's a shorter book. Micah chapter five, and just keep your finger there, either in the Bible that looks like mine or that's on your phone. And if you're like, wait, I didn't, I didn't bring my Bible to church and it's not an app on my phone. Can I stay? Yes, for, for this Sunday. And uh, the words will be up on the screen just as they always are. We put them up on the screen for your convenience. And and uh, just so you know, when we're in the, the book of Micah, Micah's writing about 700 BC. So 2,700 years ago, 700 years before Jesus appeared, all that's going to matter. And Micah's writing just a, a couple hundred years after this devastating civil war and only 20 years after his cousins up north got obliterated. I'll tell you more of what that is about in just a moment. You may not know this, or you may know it very well, even though my Bible looks like a book, this is not a book. It's a library. When, we're at the, we're in the, when we are looking at the book of Micah, it's the prophets section. Prophets are not so much fortune tellers. We want them to be, but that's not really their function. They're more hope givers. So uh, he's in that subset of the library called the prophets. And you may not know that, that that's okay, that the Bible not book is library. And now you do. But the second thing that, that we say whenever we gather here together about the Bible, when we're together as Good Shepherd Church, it, and again, this may be something that you're still wrestling with. It may be something you're not sure about at all. Maybe something, yes, finally a church believes that and talks about it. We just like to be clear about where we stand. We believe this is the only library of its kind on planet Earth. God breathed his life into its words. He put his truth onto its pages. And out of that conviction and leadership comes this custom as a congregation. When we, and some of you are beating me to it. When we talk about the Bible, this church, we lift it up. And if you're new here, you're like, well, that is one of the oddest things I've ever seen. And we would answer, you are right. It is unusual. But we've discovered something glorious, that this is a moment of oddity that shapes our identity as a community. We are a collection of people and we don't have life figured out. But the good news is we know who does. And we know that he knows what's best for us better than we do. And so when we lift up our scriptures to the Lord in this way, that's just our way of saying, God, thank you for giving us your word. We are more than ready for its power to be unleashed in our lives. Amen. Amen. So before I say any more words, let's pray. 
So Father, thank you for the, your goodness. Thank you for your word. And, and God, thank you for this reminder and, and, and that, that you know what's best for us better than we do. And in particular, if there are any within the sound of my voice wrestling with that kind of conviction, not sure if they can buy it yet, I just pray that you would love them into surrender. Use my words. Anoint them with the Holy Spirit for the goodness and the joy of all gathered here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, is it okay with you all as we start out this message and start out the whole series, The Promise of Christmas, if we just jump right into the Bible right here at the very beginning. Is it, is it okay with you if we take a, thank you for saying yes. Uh, is it okay if we, we uh, you'll get another chance to do that. Is it okay if we take a verse that has been ripped out of its context and if we look at it out of its context and then put it back into its context and once we do all of that, we see the remarkable, life-giving, hope-providing message that it contains. Is that okay with you all if that's how we start? Thank you, because even if you'd said, no, we're not going to begin that way, I was going to anyway. And, and the verse of which I speak is Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Take a look either in your Bibles or up on the screen where it says this. But remember, this is 700 years before Jesus. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, although you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And you see that, and your heart just kind of melts, and you're like, isn't that sweet? Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. And isn't it amazing how 700 years before Jesus ever appears, there's this remarkable foreshadow of his appearance. And, and you might have heard that there are dozens upon dozens of Old Testament hints and Old Testament foreshadows and Old Testament predictions of Jesus. And he fulfills them all remarkably well. And, and isn't it amazing with how the Bible fits together like a jigsaw puzzle from you? Bethlehem, Ephrathah, and we're like, yeah, I feel really glad I came to church this morning. But then, but then there's this thing, and, and, and if you've never been to Good Shepherd before, that's okay. If you've been a few times, you might not have heard this. If you've been coming for several months or maybe years, you, you know what, what I'm talking about. We have this thing that we believe called CIE. Context is everything. And when you talk about context with a Bible verse, you see what came before it, you see what comes after it, and only when you see that one verse, not in isolation, but where it stands with everything else, only then can you see what's really going on. And as we get ready to look at Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 in its context, I got to warn you, get ready for some whiplash, because that's what we're going to go through. Starting off, Look at chapter 5 and verse 1, which this time and every time comes before verse, yes. Verse 1 says this, marshal your troops now, city of troops, for what? A siege is laid against us. 
they will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. Well, that doesn't sound very a little town of Bethlehem, does it? Instead, it's a little town of Bethlehem surrounded by an army of axe murderers. And what in the world is, is going on there? And as I mentioned earlier, Micah, 700 years before Jesus, 700 BC, of all the Old Testament prophets, hope givers, truth tellers, future looker atters, of, of all of them, he has the most difficult job of them all. Because when he appears on the, on the scene in 700 BC, he is a couple hundred years after this really devastating civil war that divided Israel, the children of God, into two kingdoms, north and south. 20 years before Micah appears, about 720 BC, the northern kingdom... They were obliterated. They were conquered, decimated, devastated, and they, they actually vanished. They had, become, they had become what is known as the wandering tribes of Israel, the 10 lost tribes of Israel. So the, the Jewish people living in the south, they're called Judah. They look up and they see their Yankee cousins up in the north, and they see all of a sudden they're not even there anymore. And who is it who has done this to the northern kingdom? A mighty empire called the Assyrians, A-S-S. I'm going to keep spelling Y-R-I-A-N-S. The Assyrians located in, in what is today modern-day Syria, kind of the same part of the world from which ISIS came a decade or so ago, and so, so some of the, the same uh, mindset and outlook and brutality and terrorism, and that's how they obliterated the 10 northern tribes of Israel 20 years before Micah comes on the scene. And so when he says in verse 1, 20 years after that, a siege is laid against us, guess who has come back? Guess who, is, who has decided, ah, we got rid of all the Jews living in the northern kingdom. Wouldn't it be a good idea if we came down south and did the same thing to the southerners? And then, and then there wouldn't be any Jews left on planet earth at all. Oh my God, is it not amazing how history repeats itself? Not only in the 20th century, but in the 21st as well. So Micah, surrounded by this army of terrorists, addressing a people who are under siege, and he must feel like there's this storm and there's no way to stop the storm. And his situation, because he's seen what they've done to his cousins up north, there seems no way out of the situation that he is in now. And everything in his landscape seems desolate and despairing and utterly, completely hopeless. That, that's what Micah has. He's, he's addressing a situation devoid of hope. And I don't know about you. And I'm suspecting that you're not surrounded by an army, literal army, threatening your life today. But I dare say there are people who have walked into church today 
and what you feel is this unending sense of hopelessness. I've, I've heard it said that, that you can live for eight days without water and you can live for four minutes without oxygen. Please don't try either one, but you can only live a few seconds without hope. And if that's the case, a lot of you've been dying for some time now. That yesterday wasn't very good and there doesn't seem like there's any possibility of tomorrow being any better at all. And I don't know exactly what your hopeless situation is. Maybe for some of you on this tail end of a holiday weekend and people been together since Wednesday and by Sunday you've given up all hope that your family, your extended family will ever get it together that when everybody actually does get together, it feels a lot more like Hatfields and McCoys than it does like the Brady Bunch. And you've just given up any hope that it'll ever get any better. Maybe for others of you, it's not those extended family dynamics. It's what goes on inside. And, and you have this sort of impossible to describe level of depression and level of despair, and it doesn't have anything to do with the circumstances of your life. In fact, people will often say to you, why are you so sad? Why are you so depressed? You have A, B, and C going on in your life, and that has nothing to do with what happens inside your heart and inside your brain. And it's a miracle that you got out of church this morning, got out of bed this morning and into church today. And maybe for others of you, Married couple here, two or five or 10, rocking that empty cradle. And you've given up any hope that God's ever gonna answer that prayer, that he'd fill that cradle with your baby. And then for others of you, it's not that he hasn't answered to fill the cradle. You're gonna have that baby. And when the news gets out that you're gonna have that baby, that your life as you know it, end and then maybe for a handful of you and when you think of hopelessness it's not quite so personal it's not quite so direct you just look around at our culture and you see the rise in suicide rates and you see the rise in depression rates and crime rates you see gender madness stuff almost everywhere you look and you just want to throw up your hands how are we ever going to get any better how will this land how will our nation ever get out of the mess that we have found ourselves in the moral mess that we found ourselves in and so yeah it's you and it's me and it's so many of us there's not a literal army putting us under siege but we know what Micah was talking about when it felt so hopeless it's funny a few weeks ago when I was working on this message and I knew that hope was gonna be part of the message I I, I went back to my trusty file because I, I got files on like 100 different topics you know topics like salvation and and heaven and hell and marriage and and cats, and the Holy Spirit, and just all kinds of files. And I'll see something interesting. Oh, that'll be, maybe, that, maybe that'll help one of these messages, you know, be interesting. It'll come alive. And so I go, well, I am going to be working on hope. So I'm going to pull out that hope file, and I'm going to see what I have in that hope file, make that message come alive. And I open it up, and literally, <laughs> there was nothing in my hope. I do not exact. My hope file was empty. And so it's you and it's, and it's me and we, we come into church today, we, we launch into the Christmas season this year and we feel hope 
less. So now that you know the kind of situation that Micah was really addressing in chapter five, let's take a look at verse two again. And I'm going to read it again, and this time I'm going to read it sort of devoid of its Christmas sentimentality. It says this, after telling them, you're surrounded by an army of axe murderers, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Like, ah, Okay, you, you've, you're addressing despair and you're dropping us a nugget full of hope. Thank you, Mr. Micah. And then Micah keeps writing because look at what he says in verse three. It's Because verse two is almost like, hey, here's a, here's a help wanted. Here's a job notice. We need somebody coming out of Bethlehem who's gonna help us. What does he say in verse three? Therefore, Israel will be abandoned. You're like, oh, great. Thanks for that. Who wouldn't want that job? In, in verse one, you told us the leader's going to get his cheek bashed in. And now Israel's going to be abandoned. It's like hope and there's a despair and hope and despair. And it keeps going. And until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. Okay, a little bit, a little bit more hope. And then verse four. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will lo- live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And it's like back and forth and despair and hope and despair and hope. And you, you, sometimes you don't know whether you're coming or whether you're going. It's like once, watching one of those endless ping pong points on television. You're like, is this, is this thing ever going in? Just back and forth and back and, and forth. And what does the New Testament do? When we move over to the gospel of Matthew, Matthew, one of the four biographers of Jesus. Matthew, whose purpose is always to let his readership know, this guy, this Jesus whose birth I'm describing, he's the fulfillment of everything that Israel has ever needed or ever been called to become. What does Matthew say? Check it out in chapter 2. In verse six of Matthew's gospel. But you, this is when he's talking about the birth of Jesus. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers. You're like, wait, haven't we read this before? Yes. Matthew retweets Micah when he's talking about the birth in the manger. Are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Oh my goodness. Do you, do you, see, what, do you see what's going on? It's, it's 700 years later. It did not come on Judah's timetable. It didn't come on Judah's framework. But the promise that Micah made gets more than met in this babe in a manger. And it just goes to show you, good shepherd, that in a way people are not always looking for it. And in a, in a time they do not always expect it. When their hopelessness comes up against God's faithfulness, God's faithfulness always wins out. And so for every one of you, and you brought into church today, this sense of hopelessness about your marriage or about 
about your faith or about whether you will ever get married or not or about whether or not our land will ever have revival or not. Here's what I want you to know, that your hopelessness is no match for his faithfulness. That's what I want you to know, good shepherd. See, you, you, think, you think life doesn't have any purpose and you're wrong. You think things will never get any better in your life or in the lives of people around you, and you're wrong. You think God has lost control of the situation, and you're wrong. And God has brought you here today so that your outlook would be altered and your thinking would be changed and you would know and you would repeat and you would remember not only today but into next week that your hopelessness is no match for his faithfulness. You remember when I told you just, just a few seconds ago that you can, only, you can only live a couple of seconds without hope? I don't want you even to try because it so much has to do with where you place your trust and, and, and where you focus your mind. Honestly, what, what do you believe in more? How bad your situation is or how good your God is? What, what, what do you trust more? Your depression or his faithfulness? What gets most of your mental and emotional energy? Dwelling on how hard your life is or glorifying how good our God is. Yeah, that's, I just want it all to shift because deep down, you actually believe in, you actually trust in your despair more than you trust in his goodness. And I want that to change. Your hopelessness is no match for his faithfulness. Now, do not hear what I am not saying. I'm not saying that it's going to turn on a dime because uh, oftentimes you hear a message like this or I give a message like this and I want, well, I gave, that, I gave that message on hopelessness and faithfulness one time and then everybody got all better. It doesn't work that way. The, the Jews had to wait 700 years for their, I hope you don't have to wait that long. So it doesn't, God's looking for patience, but the other thing that God is looking for is partners. I love that Pastor Ron prayed about partnership today because there's so many times and so many ways when, when you have to own your own role in, in recreating hope in your life. A lot of times we just want to be passive and we want God to zap us. We want God to microwave us. Woo, I got, I got, I'm all better now. Life is always better when you get crock-potted than when you get microwaved. You, you, gotta, you gotta own it. It's so much like what happened in World War II. There was an American fighter pilot over Germany and kept getting hit with bullets in his fuselage and the bullets kept not exploding. And he was like, well, this is nice. I, sh I should be dead or parachuting, but I'm still flying. And when he landed back at the base, the, the team looked at this kind of miraculous event that he, he had been hit by seven bullets in the fuselage and none of them had exploded. And when they were opening up all the ordinances, the unexploded ordinances, in one of them was a note written in the Czech language, meaning that there was a 
prisoner of war. The Germans had a prisoner of war from Czechoslovakia, what became Czechoslovakia, and they put him to work in a Nazi ammunition factory, and he sabotaged the Nazis in general, and and Hitler in particular, and he put this note in the bullet that said, this is all we can do for now. This is all I can do for now. If you're feeling hopeless, what's all you can do for now? Is it talking about your faith in Jesus with someone who doesn't believe in him yet? Because I don't know if you know this or not, but getting out of your own life and getting involved in someone else's life is the best way to recover from hopelessness. Usually when we're hopeless, we just think about me, myself, and I all the time. So is getting out of that and talking to that person about your faith in Jesus, is that the way? To, is, it, is it going to a meeting? Is it going back to a meeting? I'm like, well, I've been sober for two months. I don't need that AA anymore. Oh, yeah. How's that working out for you? Is it getting back on your meds? Is it getting involved in our room in the end ministry for our neighbors who are homeless? What is is all you can do for now to demonstrate that you believe and you accept and you embrace that your hopelessness is no match for his faithfulness? This, what, what happens to us so often, when, when we have a hopeless situation, we think it's like this incredible wall, this big wall filled with bricks, ta- tall and high and, and strong. And they're like, there's no way I can jump over that, that whole wall. That wall is your marriage or your health or this land or your emotions. There's no way I can jump over that. Well, God doesn't want you dealing with the whole wall. He wants you getting the next brick. And when you get the next brick, when you take that next right step, then and only then will you be owning that process where you embrace and understand your hopelessness, no match for his faithfulness. Not on your timetable, on his. Not on your framework, on his. Not microwaved, crock-potted. Hope nobody had a microwave Thanksgiving this week. You, this food always tastes better when you slow cook it, does it not? I mean, think about what Israel had to go through. Not only did the Jews have to wait 700 years for this promise that was made actually to be delivered to them, but then when the promise was delivered to them, they get this baby? The baby doesn't go to West Point. The the baby's not a military leader. The baby's not born into royalty. The baby is born in nowhere. He's born in Bethlehem. And he comes and he demonstrates winning by losing. His victory is on the cross because on the cross, good shepherd, Jesus didn't pay it some. He paid it all. And the reason that he did that, the reason that he provides the people so much different when they were expecting is because God's great goal in life is not to give you what you want, but to give you what you need. When Jesus came and died for us on the cross and rose again on the third day, it was not to improve anyone's self-esteem. 
It's because your greatest need was not more education. Your greatest need was not to be understood. Your greatest need was forgiveness. Your greatest need remains forgiveness. And when you understand that, and when you embrace that, and when you accept, ah, my hopelessness is no match for how faithful God is in giving me not every desire of my heart, because those things tend to be sketchy, but giving me my deepest, greatest need. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's not often in my own life that I feel abjectly hopeless, like yesterday was terrible and tomorrow's going to be even worse. But there was, that, there was that time in my life when that happened. It was about a decade and a half ago. And, and I was thinking, man, I am, I am in the wrong job and, and I'm at the wrong church. It's, it's this job at this church, by the way. Don't take it personally, but I was, I was just, oh, Lord. I, I had ripped off a Band-Aid and people said, well, you need to rip off a Band-Aid and then I'll heal. And, and actually what happened is I ripped off a Band-Aid and then I keep ne- kept needing to rip off more and more Band-Aids. And, and I was just about ready to throw my hands up in the air. This is not going to get any better. And then... It didn't turn on a dime. I didn't get a breakthrough. Maybe it was due to persistence, stubbornness, orneriness, recapturing a love for scripture. That's what it was. Recapturing a love for scripture that I, so that I could help people adore the Savior. And all of a sudden, a few years later, I woke up in the morning and I was like, oh, I'm not thinking about this thing all the time anymore. All of a sudden, I'm not devoid of hope. I'm filled with it. My despair doesn't dominate my life anymore because my Lord Jesus does. You see, your despair and your hopelessness is temporary. Jesus and his faithfulness is eternal. And may that be the same for you. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for every person in here who has trusted their own hopelessness more than they've believed in your faithfulness. Every person here. And I ask that you would affect a great transaction where people begin a brick at a time to dismantle their hopelessness and to lean into your faithfulness and that you would do it because you're a good, good God. In your name we pray, amen.